We're up to verse 17, Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher, The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. It is our glory to study it, to understand it. And Father, it is our desire to live it out. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word and bless our responses to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to begin this sermon by... Uh, reading the introduction to the psalm again, because uh, this introduction gives us important information for understanding the psalm itself. Verses 17 and 18. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. I want to point just four significant things about this introduction that I think help us to understand the psalm. And the first is that David writes this not just to memorialize the life and the death of his best friend Jonathan, I think we could understand that, but also to memorialize the life and the death of Saul. Now that's interesting because of how uh, many bad characteristics that Saul has had in the last uh, few chapters. It would have been so easy for David to focus all of his attention on the wrongs in Saul's life and to completely ignore the the good things that Saul had. And I think we have a tendency to do that in America. We take sides on politics and we demonize the opposition and we become completely blind to any of the good things that may be in their lives. When you've got a government as corrupt as our own, it's very easy to allow your cynicism over national policy uh, to make you cynical over everything that America stands for. And I would encourage you not to do that. Uh, It's uh, very easy to allow the legitimate disgust that I think most of us feel over the way that corrupt politicians are destroying our nation to bleed over into a disgust over patriotism. And I think the Bible would say we ought not to do that. You see, David got a bum rap Uh, from Israel. They could have stood up for David and they did not. 
And yet David still had a patriotic loyalty to Israel. And I think his patriotism clearly shows uh, in this uh, psalm here. It's so easy to get, uh, uh, have our disagreement over the president's policies on, on war, for example, uh, to, to make us then become critical of the soldiers themselves who suffer under those policies. And we've seen in the past that is not biblical. It's easy to get so discouraged over the secularism in our land that we allow that discouragement uh, to make us cynical over patriotic holidays like Memorial Day and July 4. But three weeks ago, I demonstrated from both the Old and the New Testaments that God himself authorized soldiers to fight in even imperialistic armies like Rome. Uh, he authorized them to, to fight even though some of the wars of their country were not the greatest wars to be in, uh, that we can still honor soldiers even when we don't agree with all of the wars that our nation is fighting. And I think Vision Forum has done a masterful job of very tactfully remembering the fallen soldiers uh, from America's wars, well, especially World War II and their D-Day series. If you have never seen that, uh, you ought to take a look at it. I think they've done a wonderful job, a great balance in there, and I hope to have the same balance in the, the sermon that I give to you this morning. So the first thing to note in this introduction is that David pays a tribute to Saul, even though Saul had many weaknesses. The second thing to note is that even though David was an enthusiastic soldier, uh, he was a soldier, soldier. He did not glorify war. And this introduction says this is a lament. Uh, it was lamenting over wasted lives. It lamented the death of soldiers. It laments the ugliness of war. And I've known war buffs who do uh, the opposite. They glory in war itself. And uh, it's not just studying about the tactics of wars and, and things like that, but they glory in war themselves. And you think that they would, they would love to get involved in another uh, war between the states, for example. Yeah, let's get it going. Uh, we'd love to get involved in that war. And in doing that, they're not even imitating uh, some of the, the greatest uh, officers of uh, the war between the states or the Civil War, whatever you want to call it, either side. Uh, for example, General Robert E. Lee said, What a cruel thing is war, to separate and destroy families and friends and mar the purest joys and happiness God has granted us in this world, to fill our hearts with hatred instead of love for our neighbors and to devastate the fair face of this beautiful world. He did not glory in war. Well, there was a number of general, uh, well, generals, yeah, uh, two generals that I've got quotes from. I'm just going to give you one. Um, General Sherman said, war is hell. Now, he was pretty brutal, but he did not glory or glorify war. The statement uh, was actually made at an impromptu, um, it was an impromptu statement at the end, a conclusion of a, a speech that he gave to some uh, military cadets at the Ohio State Fair in 1880. And let me just read you the context of that quote from uh, what he said. He said, boys, I've been where you are now, and I know just how you feel. It's entirely natural that there should beat in the breast of every one of you a hope and desire that someday you can use the skill you have acquired here. Suppress it. You don't know the horrible aspects of war. I've been through two wars, and I know. I've seen cities and homes and ashes, and I would point out that he unfairly put some of those ashes into place after the war, but 
continuing on, uh, I've seen thousands of men lying on the ground, their dead faces looking up at the skies. I tell you, war is hell. And some of America's uh, greatest uh, heroes have had some of the same attitudes toward war. General Douglas MacArthur, uh, he did not like war, but he said, if we're going to fight it, we're going to fight it hard. We're going to fight it uh, to win it. And uh, this Wednesday, America is going to be 236 years old, and there is still much that we can celebrate, but we, I think, should learn from our founding fathers that we ought not to enthusiastically and too quickly embrace war. On July 4, 1776, 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence, and when they did that, they knew full well that they could be facing some incredible suffering. In fact, they put it right at the end of the Declaration of Independence. They said, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And sticking by their convictions, they did go through untold sufferings for themselves and their families. And I'll just give you a, a little bit of an insight of some of those sufferings. Of the 56 men, I understand that five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in battle. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 men died as a result of wounds or other aspects of suffering from, from the war. The British sank Carter Braxton's merchant ships. And as a result of the war, uh, this wealthy merchant uh, died in bankruptcy and poverty. Uh, when the British General Cornwallis took Thomas Nelson's uh, home, Nelson told him, fire on it. Uh, his house was destroyed, and that was not the only thing destroyed. He was another person, fairly wealthy, uh, who died in poverty. Uh, John Hart uh, was driven from his dying wife as he helped his 13 children flee from their lives. Everything he had was destroyed, and he spent a year uh, fleeing and hiding in the forests and in caves and uh, eventually died of ex from exhaustion. So even wars that are won have a certain degree of solemnity and of sadness to them. And so the second thing that I want you to notice as we go through this song is that this is a lament. But the third thing to note is that David wanted Israel to learn to value the courage, the valor, the bravery, and the other uh, characteristics that were exemplified in the lives of Saul and of Jonathan. So even though we do not glorify war and glory in it, we do not shun from war either. We do not shy away from it. War is sometimes a necessity, and the kind of pacifism that shrinks from war is even uglier than war itself. Cowardice, compromise uh, can be much uglier than war. And I think John Stuart Mills was right when he said this, War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth war is much worse. The person who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing which is more important than his own personal safety, is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. The last thing I want you to note in this introduction is that David wanted the men of Israel to never forget about the heroism of Saul and of Jonathan. And he wanted his men to teach this to the children uh, of Judah. 
Now, uh, he not only wrote this tribute down, but it says he included it in the book of Jasher. Now, what's the book of Jasher? The uh, book of Jasher was an ancient record that kept getting added to, that recounted the, the exploits and the wars of God's uh, people and their heroes and what kinds of things that they did. And it's uh, at least as old as Joshua, probably older than Joshua, because in Joshua 10, verse 13, it says Joshua put his battles into the book of Jasher, which implies that the book of Jasher had preceded him. But even if we count from Joshua forward, we've got 436 years of, uh, of wars being uh, read and of, of heroes and their exploits being recounted. And so generation after generation is hearing about the war heroes of old. And I believe we too must tell and retell to our children the stories of freedom and patriotism and sacrifice and courage uh, and, and tell them to multiple generations. Tell stories of battles for freedom like that of William Wallace and uh, Robert the Bruce in, in Scotland. Uh, don't shield your children from such accounts. Let them see these role models of heroism. If there is a book of Jasher, uh, Jasher whose only purpose is to recount these kinds of stories, I think it's very biblical for us to have an ongoing account of uh, such heroism as well. And throughout this sermon, I hope to apply the principles of this, of this uh, passage by telling some of the stories from our own country. Uh, stories like uh, that of... Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. Butch O'Hare was a fighter pilot assigned to the aircraft carrier Lexington in the South Pacific. And one day his entire squadron was sent on a mission. Well, he got airborne. And uh, I'm sure if I get any of this story wrong, Trevor will be able to correct me afterwards. But after he was airborne, uh, he noticed that uh, somebody had not topped off his fuel tank and so he told, told his leader, I don't have enough gas here to get there and uh, get all the way back to the carrier. So the uh, a flight leader uh, told him to go back to the carrier and reluctantly went out of formation, went back. And on the way back, providentially, he saw this uh, large uh, this squadron of Japanese planes that was heading toward uh, the, the ships that they had just come from. And it just turned his blood cold, but he realized he didn't have enough time to go and uh, bring the, the, his own squadron back. And he didn't have enough time. He did, there's no way he could warn the ship. So he did the only thing he, he thought he could do. He flew into that squadron with his uh, uh, 50 calibers blazing and was trying to shoot. They were shocked. He was kind of came out of nowhere, I guess and was uh, taking out these planes, and they started, they broke out of their formation. He was diving in and out of those until he finally completely ran out of ammunition. But they were still there, so he didn't know quite what to do. So what he did is he tried to dive at these planes, clip a wing, clip a tail, do anything he could. And again, providentially, they got exasperated, and they went off somewhere else, and uh, he was able to bring his crippled plane onto the aircraft carrier. Well, he told them what had happened, so they reviewed the, the, the film that's associated with the, 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 the um, uh, 50 caliber guns, and it showed that he had taken down five of the enemy uh, aircraft. Now, that happened on February 20. Did I get that pretty right, Trevor? He, he's, not, he, he's not sure. 
February 20, 1942, and for that action, Butch became the Navy's first ace of World War II, first naval aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor, and a year later, uh, Butch was killed at the age of 29. So he was uh, kind of a young fellow. His picture is actually in uh, your, your outline there. Now, back home in Chicago, his people did not want his memory to die, and so O'Hare Airport was named after this courageous man. So there is the story behind the name of that airport. Now, you look at men like that, whether they're believers or whether they're unbelievers, there are character traits that we can be teaching our children lessons from. Don't let those stories go wasted. Now, I'm only going to highlight four points in this sermon, and as typically, I hide other points underneath. There's a bazillion sub-points, but uh, four points, okay? And these are four points because David commanded uh, his men to teach this song to the children of Judah. I've worded these points in the same way. I phrased it that we should teach our children these things. First, teach your children how to respect America's fallen soldiers. Uh, the younger generation, I think, many times is clueless on how to uh, show re respect for soldiers, and I think we need to teach them. It doesn't come naturally or automatically. So I'm going to give four subpoints that show how we can teach our children to respect uh, America's fallen heroes. David begins by saying, The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Three times that phrase, how the mighty have fallen, is repeated uh, to teach us that death comes to all, comes even to the mightiest of men. And to me, this implies, first of all, that even though we should make heroes, we should not engage in hero worship. Okay, there's a difference between uh, the two. Uh, we are all dust, and to dust we will return, and that means that our hope for America's future is not in heroes. Our hope for America's future is in the Lord. But here is the second sub-point. Even though we do not worship heroes, we should find our hearts being drawn out in some way by their sacrifices, their heroism, or whatever else it is that makes them uh, beautiful, that makes them worth emulating. He says, the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. Now, this is interesting to me because there is a certain sense, commentators point out, in which the ugliness of Saul's character, at least in his latter years, the ugliness of his character was somewhat tempered by something beautiful, by something uh, that uh, could be emulated, that was admirable. And this is an inspired psalm, so this is God himself saying that Saul had a beauty. There was something admirable about his character. And there are heroes in America's wars who can gain our respect even if they have weak and flawed characters. Uh, for example, there is much that can be admired about uh, President Andrew Jackson. He is definitely not my favorite uh, president because he had a lot of glaring weaknesses, but that's precisely why I've picked him uh, as an illustration. Uh, it would be very easy to overlook the great things in his life if we only focused on his problems. And there were plenty of problems in Andrew Jackson's life. For example, I cannot respect uh, the way he constantly had a temper, a violent temper that would flare, or the way he would get involved in duels. In fact, he had a bullet in his chest for the remainder of his life because of one duel that he got into. I can't respect a person who has murdered another just to save his face, to save his pride. 
And yet he was a man of his own day. He didn't recognize it as murder. He, he was uh, in many ways blinded to his own character faults. Or you can, you can take a look at the ethnic cleansing of Indians that he engaged in. In many ways, he was like Saul, a person that I can only reluctantly admire. Uh, I disagree with his opinion that the states cannot nullify federal law. And I say, of course they can nullify a federal law. There's a history of that. And there are many other things I disagree with, but I cannot help but admire this man's courage and heroism in the Battle of New Orleans or his taking on Congress in dismantling the central bank that they set up. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, that's the best legacy of his presidency is he took down that central bank against incredible pressure and incredible opposition. And he had some other characteristics that could be respected. The third aspect of respecting America's heroes is to not relish any bad-mouthing that the enemies of America might bring against such men. Uh, Verse 20 says, Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Now, one commentator just applies this to the soldiers coming back. He said maybe the Philistines were already coming back from the battle and they were filtering past the charred remains of Ziklag. And this is reminding David that that they're going to take advantage and be even more aggressive, more bold in their attacks against Israel. That's possible. He had that in, in his mind. But I don't really think that's what this is getting at. I want you to take a look at that phrase again. He says, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Now, how would women triumph over Israel? It's clearly not in terms of military. They weren't in the military at all. This is a moral triumph. This is a propaganda triumph. And in fact, we saw in the last chapter of 1 Samuel that the Philistine propaganda machine was already greatly at work uh, saying that the gods of the Philistines were much more powerful than the gods, uh, uh, the, the God of Israel. And this was something that bothered David. It was his testimony, the testimony of God, uh, that he was troubled over. And in the same way, it grieves me when international students, and this has happened to me a number of times, where international students who have been taught at UNO that uh, that the problems with America is that we have too much free market. And I'm telling them, what? We've not had a, a free market a, at all. We've got fascism at work in America, not free market, but they've been drilled into their heads. Uh, if we would get a, rid of uh, all of this a free market, we wouldn't have the economic problems. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a terrible testimony. I think, tell it not in Gath that free market is the problem with America. No, there's other problems that are out there. Or we could apply it in a different direction. It grieves me when Muslims often associate the moral filth that is coming out of Hollywood and being exported to other countries, they associate it with Christianity. And they do it all the time. I've heard this over and over again. They think, okay, America's a Christian nation. What is it that America exports to other countries? It's pornography. It's killing. It's all of these horrible things and worldviews that are in these movies. And so I think we need to say, tell it not in gaff that Christianity is in any way associated uh, with the kind of stuff that comes 
uh, out of, uh, out of uh, Hollywood. And so David is defending Saul and Jonathan against revisionist histories that would make them think that Israel was worse than it really was. And we, on our part, must make a, not make America worse than it really is when we're opposing all of the unconstitutional things that are happening. Uh, I would still much rather live in America than virtually any other country in the world. The fourth way to respect fallen soldiers is by letting landmarks and memorials become a part of paying our respects to them. Look at verse 21. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. It's beautiful language. I'm not going to get into all of the poetic meaning of it. But from this point on, Gilboa stands for, in David's mind, in the same place that Flanders Fields stands for the Canadians, or Omaha Beach stands for Americans. And actually, it became a memorial, much like the Vietnam Memorial or the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Every time that David thought about Gilboa or visited Gilboa, he was thinking about the mighty men who had tragically fallen there. And in your travels, I think it would be wise if you teach your children to respect America's heroes by visiting some of the war memorials in America. Christians many times shy away from that. They think we ought not to be, uh, we ought not to be elevating uh, those kinds of things. And I think, no, that's the exact opposite of what the Scripture would say. Visiting such sites used to be called paying your respects. And too many of our younger generation don't know how to pay respects in this way. We've lost something, I think, in America. When I was younger, there were a lot of people who were sentimental enough to put flowers on the graves of their loved ones who had died in a war, or even to put flowers on the graves of others. Uh, maybe at memorials, they would put uh, flowers down to, to honor, to pay respects to those who have given the liberties that we are enjoying uh, in America. And so if you can take your children back in time through history using those four subpoints, I think uh, you're going to be able to show them a little bit about how to respect the heroes uh, from America. Second main thing that I would encourage you to do is to teach your children how to honor the heroism of America's fallen soldiers. And you might think, well, that's almost the same as point number one, but it's not. I, I distinguish the two. The first Roman numeral is dealing with respect of their persons, and the second point is honoring them by talking about what they have done. What is it that makes them heroes? Okay? And I have six subpoints for Roman numeral two. First, you don't honor America's fallen heroes by sanitizing your stories and by avoiding the ugliness of war. Verse 22 says, From the blood of the slain, <coughs> from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. And I want you to notice the first two phrases there. They're kind of gross. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty. There are certain aspects to telling a good war story that are gory. And we don't have to be shy about telling our children about the enormous pain and savagery of war. 
Uh, it honors the fallen soldiers when you tell the next generation not only the injuries that they have suffered, but also the damage that they have inflicted uh, upon the, the enemy as well. That's not glorying in war. It's simply being realistic that war is an ugly business. And it shows the bravery and the sacrifices of these men, and it keeps us from glorying in war itself and being too quick to embrace it, but at the same time honoring those who have gone through that because they endured horror. Second, I want you to notice that David honored Saul and Jonathan by honoring the enemy. Notice in verse 22 that he calls the enemy the mighty The blood and the fat of the enemy that strewed and smeared all over the landscape there was not the fat and the blood of weaklings. Saul and Jonathan in their lifetime had taken down many mighty, and in this last battle they had taken down at least a few, according to this text, at least a few of the mighty men of battle. And so you don't honor our fallen soldiers by belittling uh, the enemy. You don't say, oh yeah, our guys are really tough. They just took out several weaklings who were unarmed. I mean, that wouldn't glorify them at all, would it? Uh, No, what you do is you describe the reality of the opposition that is out there, and you're honest about the heroism of the men on the other side. And I think Vision Forum's D-Day account did this well by showing the honorable characteristics, for example, of General Rommel, uh, Germany's uh, best uh, general. Rommel was a man who... uh, got the respect of not only his troops, but also uh, of, the, of the enemy. Now, he had his faults as well, and uh, the, the, the videos go into some of those faults, but he was a remarkable general. They called him the Desert Fox because of some of his exploits in, in Africa. He was a man of principle. He refused to obey orders that came down for him to kill captured commandos, Jews, and civilians, in all the fields of his command. He refused to do it. He said, it's unlawful. I'm not going to obey an unlawful order on that. In fact, he was such a man of principle that he eventually got part of a, uh, 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 a coup, a, a coup attempt uh, to overthrow Hitler. And in the process, um, it failed. And of course, he had to, uh, they gave him the option, your family's going to die or you commit suicide and we'll take, a, take it out slowly. But Uh, He died as a result of this. And there are many other remarkable mighty men that can be found amongst America's enemies. And mentioning those mighty men, their exploits, not only highlights the remarkable nature of our own heroes who fought them, but I think what it does is it gives a, it shows a, a balanced fairness that keeps our kids from thinking we're just propagandists. Everything that America does is, is right, you know, and valiant. No, we, we're being fair in our dealing uh, with others. During our war for independence, the Brits had some remarkably brave and decent men. And Otto Scott is a historian who tried to be fair and balanced in his treatment of both the good and the bad and the ugly on both sides of the war. And uh, he thought the Patriot movie uh, just went a little bit overboard and broad brushing. Sure, there were bad things that happened, but he thought, boy, it almost looked like the Brits, this is the way they always, they always worked. And he pointed out that there were men of heroism and good character on the other side. So when you're teaching providential history, don't downplay the enemy's good character. Third, you don't honor America's heroes by exaggeration but you honor them by focus. David honored the courage of Jonathan. Jonathan did not flee. 
But I want you to notice he couldn't pay the same tribute to Saul in the last battle. Nevertheless, he highlights the fact that Saul's sword took out some Philistines before he retreated. But he doesn't say that Saul, uh, that his sword did not turn back because it did turn back. And this brief retelling shows me that we do not honor our heroes by exaggerating their virtues. We honor them by focusing on their virtues. And just for, by way of illustration, when you go to a funeral, at the funeral, usually the speaker is not going to be telling you all of the bad things that went wrong with the guy that died, right? Um, they might mention a few, especially if they're pretty obvious to everybody, uh, to balance out some of the positive things that they're, that they're saying, but they tend to focus in on the things that were praiseworthy in that man's life. It's one way that we can, <clears throat> that we can honor uh, the, the fallen. Now, of course, we can go to the opposite extreme. Uh, I've been to f- funerals where, wow, the praise was so gushy and false that you wonder... Who is this guy that they're describing? Doesn't look anything like the person I know. And so there could be extremes in either direction. And when we honor our war heroes, we need to avoid exaggeration in either direction. Sometimes the exaggerated praise that you read about in, in some of our, America's heroes, to me it smacks of hero worship. Uh, Clark Clifford shared a story about his former uh, boss, uh, Harry S. Truman, that made him laugh. At uh, one of the staff meetings that he went to, the, uh, the male clerk brought in a letter. It was lavender. It had a very regal seal on it. It was just flowing with ribbons, very ostentatious little package. And uh, the president opened it up, <clears throat> and he saw that it was a letter from uh, King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia, whose salutation began, Your Magnificence. Well, Truman repeated the phrase out loud. He said, your magnificence. And laughing, he said, I like that. I don't know what you guys call me when I'm not here, but it's okay if you refer to me from now on as his magnificence. And they got a big laugh out of that. It was just exaggerated praise. I mean, he, wasn't, uh, he didn't take it seriously at all. And the fact that it was exaggerated and empty praise could be seen by the fact that very shortly, Truman... Uh, sent a message to the United Nations to uh, allow the <clears throat> importation of 100,000 Jews into Palestine. And right after that, Ibn Saud uh, sent another letter to him and just began, Dear Mr. President, uh, <laughs> know your magnificence, okay? <laughs> so while praise of the fallen is appropriate, Our praise should not resort to lies, exaggeration, or flattery, as many stories of presidents and war heroes have done. I mean, I read some of these Christian books about presidents who are anything but Christian. They try to turn everybody into a a Christian from the the past. And uh, it's just not right. It's not an appropriate way uh, to, to write history. And it's obvious here, Saul does not receive the same praise that Jonathan did. In fact, uh, his fleeing is hinted at. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. Now, this is probably referring to the earlier days of Saul's life before his paranoia set in, before the, uh, the, uh, the, the demon uh, began uh, affecting him. And he had quite a number of years there. Now, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, you get a number of hints that he had a, a lot of gracious 
characteristics. He had uh, some degree of humility, and, and he very much was uh, loved by the people. And I've summarized this point in your outlines as paint a picture of character issues worth imitating. Not all heroes have good character issues as a whole, but there can still be uh, traits that you can draw out to say, this was a good trait that you can emulate. This is something I don't want you kids to emulate. I think we can do uh, at least that. And uh, some of the heroes in American uh, history, uh, they were hated by their troops. They were not liked at all, and yet they still recognized, yeah, this man is a great man in terms of bravery, endurance, patience, maybe strategy. Uh, some were incredibly loved by their men. Uh, I think General Robert E. Lee had it all. Uh, even his enemies could, be dis- uh, uh, could have used the words of verse 23 to have described Robert E. Lee. I'm convinced of that. Let me read you one sample story from an enemy, from, from a northerner, that I think highlights his beautiful character. One historian said, After the Battle of Gettysburg, a wounded Union soldier looked up to see General Robert E. Lee riding by. The soldier raised his hand in defiance and shouted, Hurrah for the Union! Lee looked at him and dismounted. The soldier later recounted that he thought Lee was coming to kill him. Instead, the general came over to the soldier and said, Son, I hope you will be well soon. The soldier later wrote, If I live a thousand years, I shall never forget the expression on General Lee's face. There he was, defeated, retiring from a field that had cost him and his cause almost their last hope, yet he stopped to say words like those to a wounded soldier of the opposition who had taunted him as he passed by. And you know what? It's recounting stories of heroism like that that can help our children to not get bitter over tragic events that happened to your family, but instead to rise and to aspire to the heroism of a Robert E. Lee, to aspire to the heroism of a person who shows kindness and love to even his enemies, even though he is going through enormous trouble and pain himself. Verse 23 also teaches relational lessons. And in their death, they were not divided. Uh, Some fallen American heroes were not really family men. I think Saul had some weaknesses there, had his bad moments. I think he loved his son. But I really think that this is not so much a tribute to Saul as it is a tribute to Jonathan. Uh, When we looked at the battle scene itself, we saw that Saul's sons took the lower ground trying to fight off the enemy while Saul escaped to higher ground in the hopes that he would be able to escape. But the archers got him uh, anyway. But to me, it showed the devotion that Saul had. He stuck with his dad, and they stuck together. And there are wonderful stories of soldiers who stuck with their buddies, knowing full well it would mean their death. The TV series Band of Brothers tells stories of men who, even in facing death itself, they stuck together. They stuck together, and there's something that draws our hearts out to that kind of heroism. Verse 23 concludes with two things that made Saul and Jonathan the kind of macho men that stories are told about. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Uh, When Saul was first made king, uh, the narrator of 1 Samuel tells us that he stood not just 
ahead above all of his men. He stood head and shoulders above all of his men. He was a huge guy and uh, and a very strong uh, man, and yet he was swift. Uh, You know, a lot of strong, brawny guys cannot run fast, but Jonathan and Saul had it both. They were tough, they were strong, and they were very fast. And so he is praising here Saul and Jonathan for their athletic prowess. Why should we teach our children about the athletic prowess of America's fallen soldiers? Well, because manliness is a good thing to aspire to. Now, that's not the only way you can show manliness. There's other ways as well. But neither should it be neglected out of political correctness. This is an inspired account that admires their manliness in a very physical way. And there are hundreds of stories that can encourage our children to be fit and to not give up and to endure hardship as a good soldier. I think of the story of uh, John Coulter. Uh, He was a part of the Lewis and Clark expedition of uh, 1804 to 1806. Uh, His abilities at tracking, hunting, foraging were incredibly valuable to the team, but his whole life demonstrated that he really was a man's man. And maybe some of you have read the account of Coulter's Run. Uh, fascinating, a fascinating story. The year before, in 1808, uh, he had been wounded by some Blackfeet warriors when he was uh, bringing uh, some of the Crow Indians to Fort Raymond. But the next year, he had another run-in uh, with the Blackfeet. He was canoeing up the Jefferson River with another mountain man by the name of uh, John Potts when they encountered several hundred Blackfeet Uh, Indians who demanded that they come to shore. Well, Coulter went to shore. He figured there's no escape. There's no way of fighting. Maybe I can negotiate my way out of this. But Potts absolutely refused. And so one of the warriors uh, shot him. Well, Potts retaliated by shooting and killing one of the warriors. And that really ticked them off. So there was over a hundred rifles that were aimed at Potts. He was just riddled with bullets. And then they dragged his body to shore. They hacked him to pieces. They threw stuff from his body all over Coulter uh, just to to taunt uh, Coulter. But then they thought, you know what? Let's have fun. Let's have a contest and see who can kill Coulter. And let's do it without muskets. Let's just do it the old-fashioned way with spears. So they stripped all of the clothing and the shoes off of Coulter And they told him he could run. They gave him a head start, and then they chased him, and they chased him, and they chased him. And uh, uh, he's running over stones and all kinds of things that really uh, hurt his feet, but they didn't realize that he was an incredibly fast, long-distance runner. And uh, after some miles, he still was way ahead of all of the other warriors except for one. There was one warrior that was only 20 yards behind him. And uh, Coulter's nose was still bleeding profusely, so he looked a mess. But let me pick up the story as told by John Bradbury. Again, he turned his head and saw the savage not 20 yards from him. Determined, if possible, to avoid the expected blow, he suddenly stopped, turned around, and spread out his arms. The Indian, surprised by the suddenness of the action and perhaps at the bloody appearance of Coulter, also attempted to stop, but exhausted with running, he fell whilst endeavoring to throw his spear, which stuck in the ground and broke in his hand. Coulter instantly snatched up the pointed part with which he pinned him to the earth and then continued his flight. Coulter got a blanket from the killed Indian 
and he, he would need it for surviving later on. He didn't have any moccasins, any shoes. And uh, <clears throat> at the Madison River, five miles from his start, he dove underwater. He climbed into a beaver lodge. It was a great big uh, beaver lodge and uh, waited until they came. They were looking all over the place for, uh, for him. He could see through the slats that they were out there. That night, he slipped out, swam to the shore, and then uh, decided, if I go the direction I've been going, for sure they're going to catch me, so I'm going to do the unexpected. They're not going to expect that a guy in bare feet is going to be able to climb the jagged rocks of the, the cliff that was there, but he did. He climbed up not only through that uh, ragged uh, terrain, but through the snow of the mountain, down the other side, and he walked for 11 days on swollen feet until finally he got uh, to the little big horn where there was a trader's fort. It was an incredible feat of survival and endurance. Now, those are the kinds of stories that can help our children to not give up simply because it's uncomfortable, to not give up simply because they're going through some pain. And there are many stories of physical valor in America's history. Uh, even small men have proved their valor and endurance in remarkable ways. There are stories of old men, stories of boys uh, who can inspire us as well. Perhaps you've read of the escape of uh, Chris Ryan. Uh, Chris Ryan made SAS history with, quote, the longest escape and evasion by an SAS trooper or any other soldier, unquote. And he actually beat the previous record of escape and evasion uh, by 100 miles. Uh, that was uh, made by Jack uh, uh, Salito, however you pronounce it, uh, in the Sahara Desert in 1942. So we can use war stories to teach our children about manliness, perseverance, being faithful, even when it is painful. So there are six ways you can teach your children how to honor America's military heroes. Third major point is that we should teach our children to remember the blessings that America's fallen soldiers have provided for our country. Verse 24 only mentions financial blessings that came as a result of Saul's leadership of the army. Let's go ahead and read that. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. A new American commentary says, Saul should not be thought of as having personally distributed such manifestations of wealth, but his military successes provided a stable society that permitted the Israelites to acquire wealth through agriculture, trade, and conquest. Having a strong defensive military, even if it's not always used perfectly, does provide for a more stable society. I've not been fond of some of America's uh, offensive wars around the globe, but on July 4, we remember the incredible sacrifices made by our founding fathers to preserve our liberties. I think that first American war for independence, it was a good war. It was a biblical war. It was a just war. Uh, I think uh, it's a war that we ought to be thankful to the Lord for. Now, later on, th this set the tone for, what is it, 236 years but in 1812, the British tried to control the continent again, and that war, too, was fought with heaven's help. And I think it deserves a retelling. Now, on the other hand, there have been wars that have been engaged that have done the exact opposite. So it's not always bringing financial prosperity. There have been some wars that have actually sapped America's wealth, incredibly 
uh, sap that R.L. Dabney gives a lengthy account of a delegation from the South begging Abraham Lincoln uh, to consider a compromise and to not go to war. Colonel Baldwin was a spokesman, and he assured Lincoln that he would not have to compromise on the issue of union. But they urged a slower process of reconciliation of the states and sought to convince uh, Lincoln that they had the votes to eventually make reunion possible. Lincoln, though, was adamant that the lost taxes in the meantime would be unacceptable. Finally, Colonel Baldwin said, Only give this assurance to the country in a proclamation of five lines, and we pledge ourselves that Virginia and with her the border states will stand by you as though you were our own Washington. So sure am I of this and of the inevitable ruin which will be precipitated by the opposite policy that I would this day freely consent. If you would let me write those decisive lines, you might cut off my head were my life my own the hour after you signed it. He was offering his life in exchange for saving this country, the bloodshed that would happen from the war. He said he was willing to exchange his life if he would just make a few concessions of the things that the South absolutely felt were unconstitutional, absolutely intolerable. And Abraham Lincoln's callous remark was, what then would become of my tariff? Another witness of this southern delegation that was meeting at the same time said everything came down to money being lost from the Charleston ports in their whole conversation. And he quoted Lincoln as saying, if I do that, what will become of my revenue? I might as well shut up housekeeping at once. And so the war between the states really was a war, an economic war uh, on the South. And there have been other wars that have robbed Americans of wealth rather than helping them. Now, you might disagree with my interpretation of that. That's fine. But the point is, you're probably going to be able to think of some wars where this is true, where wars have brought curse, not blessing. And so that's what we need to teach to our children, that wars can bring both blessings, they can bring cursings. Uh, That uh, wars can bring stability or instability, uh, and, and we need to be cautious with the machinery of war. Then lastly, teach your children how to express both love and loss for America's fallen soldiers. Uh, Verses 26 through 27, or let's begin at 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And once again, I want you to notice the repetition of that phrase, how the mighty have fallen. And I think this helps to keep love and loss in perspective. America's heroes are heroes, but they're not gods. They're not perfect, and they remind us all of our human frailty and mortality. In fact, that's one of the good reasons why we ought to be teaching our kids about the wars of America is it teaches not only... The, the, the danger uh, there, but it teaches us there are some things that are worth dying for. There are things worth dying for. And I think the movie Braveheart does a brilliant job of making exactly that point. I love uh, William Wallace's statement, every man dies, not every man really lives. Remembering America's fallen helps to give perspective on life and death. But that same phrase that I just read also reminds us 
that the love we, we, we express should be a, not a love for war, but a love for the heroes involved in such sacrifices. Now, I don't have a problem with enjoying the study of war. I think we men are fascinated with war. And uh, we enjoy uh, studying the, the techniques and tactics and all of the different things that go into it. It's very, very intriguing. But it isn't war that we value, but the freedoms that emerge from a successful battle against tyranny. It isn't war that we value, but the men and the women who were involved in that war. And there is a difference. David loved Jonathan as his own soul. It says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. It's natural to find our children to be distressed when the heroes that they look up to don't live happily ever after. And I think it's a healthy thing for our kids to realize. People don't always live happily ever after, even though they're good, good people. It brings realism. It helps them to identify with amazing men like Stonewall Jackson and others and to feel real distress and loss and grief as we read about their deaths. That's a healthy thing. I trust, well, put it this way, a trust in God's sovereignty does not mean we don't grieve over losses. I don't think anybody... Uh, doubts the fact that General Robert E. Lee trusted God's sovereignty just as much as David trusted God's sovereignty. And yet, he felt the loss of Stonewall Jackson enormously. And the loss we feel empathetically pales into insignificance with the loss that those men felt. Verse 26 says, Your love for me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Those who have fought for long periods in combat, like Jonathan and David had, sometimes develop a close relationship with each other you cannot compare to any other friendship. And it's not devaluing marriage, and it's not devaluing uh, other kinds of friendships. But there are friendships developed during the misery of war that are so strong that the love that has been lost or the loss of that person, is it's more painful than any other loss that they, that, they, that, they, that they can experience. And we who have not gone through that have a hard time understanding that. And there have been some movies, I think, have given a tiny glimpse into the pain of the loss of such a buddy. Now, in conclusion, because this is a lament for the fall of Israel's heroes, I think it's appropriate for us to remember not only great warriors like Saul and Jonathan, but to remember those who have died in America's wars, however faulty those wars may have been. And to do so, I think we're imitating David. This Wednesday, I would encourage you to remember the losses in America's war for independence. According to the World Book Encyclopedia, 25,700 Americans died and 10,000 British. That's a a war that defined the course uh, of the past 236 years. Britain, when they once again tried to control the continent in the War of 1812, we lost 20,000 there. Perhaps the most tragic loss of life was in the war between the states. Um, uh, It was a war that claimed more American lives than any other war. In fact, it's equal to all of the other wars put together. Now, uh, for uh, about 110 years, up until recently, the the figure that they gave for how many people had died was 618,222 men. But recently, J. David Hacker, who's a demographic historian from Binghamton University in New York, he's digitized all the ancient uh, um, census figures and a very sophisticated analysis and... Uh, he, 
he came to, and there's several other historical societies have studied his, his analysis, and they've confirmed it. They say this is a slam dunk. The new figure is that over 750,000 people died as a direct result of that war. I feel sick. I feel distressed every time I read about the war between the states. It just makes me feel, uh, f- feel ill. The, the deaths, both the North and the South, it just seemed like such a needless war. But if we only look at the big wars, we lose perspective on the steady stream of deaths America has suffered. In addition to those three, let me read you 32 more American wars. I'm going to skip the dates even though I have them here. I'm just going to name the war and how many people just so you can get a feel for the heavy price that uh, we, have, we have paid. War for Independence, 25,700. Northwest Indian War, 1,056. Quasi War, 514. War of 1812, 20,000. First Seminole War, 36. Black Hawk War, 305. Second Seminole War, uh, 1,535. Uh, Mexican-American War, 13,283. Third Seminole War, 26. Civil War, 750,000. Indian Wars, 919. Great Sioux War, 314. Spanish-American War, 2,446, Philippine-American War, 4,196, Boxer Rebellion, 131, Mexican Revolution, 35, Haiti Occupation, 148, World War I, 116,516, North Russian Campaign, 424, American Force Siberia, 328, Nicaragua Occupation, 48, World War II, 405,399, Korean War, 36,516. Vietnam War, 58,209. El Salvador Civil War, 37. Uh, Beirut, uh, 19. Panama, 40. Gulf War, 258. Operation Provide Comfort, 19. Somalia Intervention, 43. Bosnia, 12. NATO uh, Air Campaign in Yugoslavia, 20. Afghanistan, 1,893. Iraq, 4,484. Total, about one and a half million people. Now, were those wars worth it? Maybe a better question to ask is, are we worth the sacrifice that those people uh, made? Are we living in a way that honors those sacrifices that they made and makes those sacrifices worthwhile? Or is our country actually defiling the names of our heroes through our immorality, through our anti-Christian stances, uh, through the unconstitutional agencies and programs and, uh, and policies? Does America today stand against the very principles that most of those one and a half million people died for? To answer that question, let me read from a report from the Congress in 1854. Someone had sued the government demanding, they said there's too much Christianity in the government, demanding a separation of Christianity and state. And as a part of their response, um, the the Congress commissioned the House Judiciary Committee to produce a detailed report. It took a year, and you ought to read it. It's an amazing thing. I'm going to only read one little paragraph from that big report that gives you a little bit of a flavor of where they were coming from uh, when the Congress ratified it. It says, had the people during the revolution had any suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. At the time of the adoption of the Constitution and the amendments, 
The universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged. Not any one sect, but Christianity. In this age, there can be no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the Republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. The great, vital, and conservative element in our system is the belief of our people in the pure doctrines and divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The date for that congressional report was March 27, 1854. And according to that report, the wars that we fought were to preserve American civiliza- uh, Christian civilization, not to reduce it. And it's my belief that many of the heroes of the past who have died and bled for America's liberty would grieve that America has thrown away an incredible Christian heritage, much like Esau threw away his heritage for what? A present comfort, a meal. Incredible. They would grieve that we have trampled their sacrifices in the ground by passively giving up a Christian civilization. Now, whatever you think about about uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and I personally think he's an enemy of the Constitution, not a friend, yet he was absolutely right when he said on June 6, 1944, if we will not prepare to give all that we have and all that we are to preserve Christian civilization in our land, we shall go to destruction. And it's my prayer that on this 200th anniversary of the War of 1812, on this 236th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, that Americans would be stirred up everywhere to be valiant, to be heroic in our fight to preserve the Christian civilization that is rapidly being lost, to preserve the liberties Uh, that we have in America, and that we teach these principles to our children and to our children's children. May it be so. Amen. Father God, so much material in this passage here that has been neglected in the church of Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would resurrect the old paths that people might walk in them. Father, that you would enable us Uh, to value the kinds of sacrifices that people like Jonathan and even Saul, people that we don't totally agree with, and yet they gave their lives to defend their country. I pray, Father, that we would have a heart like David did when he sang this lament. Uh, Bless this, your people, Father, and bless their efforts uh, to seek to restore the liberties that are being lost in our nation and to restore the Christian civilization that we once had. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.